Today's scripture reading is in Esther, chapter 5, verses 1 through 14, which can be found on page 413 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have a Bible of your own or know someone who needs one, please feel free to take one of the Pew Bibles as our gift to you. Again, Esther 5, verses 1 through 14. Please stand for the uh, reading of the word if you're able. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I will prepare for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is it you wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if you found favor in the sight of, in the, sight of the king, and if you please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither, neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches and the number of his sons and all of the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared, and tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we do return to the book of Esther this morning. We're in chapter 5, as Denny read for us. And at this point in the story, I've got to recap a little bit because it's been so long. But at this point in the story, what we have is the Jews are awaiting annihilation. An edict has been passed. It's been issued. And a date has been set to kill all the Jews throughout the Persian Empire. 
And it seems that the only hope, humanly speaking, was Queen Esther's plea before the king himself to reverse that edict or to do something to stop Haman's plan. Of course, Esther had been hiding her identity. She is Jewish. She should be concerned with her people. But she was hiding her identity and kind of compromising, I think. And so finally, something happens in her heart, and she is transformed into into a courageous leader willing to sacrifice her life, if necessary, to save her people from destruction. So she does approach the king, which is a risky thing. You're not really supposed to come to the king unsummoned. And unless the king extends and holds out the golden scepter, uh, the person would be put to death. And so she takes that risk, comes into the king's presence, he holds out the scepter, and she is given an opportunity to be in his presence. And so what does she want? What does she ask once she has that opportunity? She says, why don't you come to my feast? Now why is she doing that? She's not asking for her people, she's asking to spend more time with the king and Haman also. I think the reason is because she wants to reestablish her relationship with the king. Remember, she was really concerned that he had forgotten about her. She hadn't seen him for a month, and now she appears before him. He is pleased. He's happy to see her, but she doesn't know if she's got his favor. So she says, why don't we spend time together? Just get reacquainted. And so they have a feast, and then they have another feast. And so that's her strategy. And Haman is included in both, of course, I think, by design. And right when they had finished their first feast and planned their next feast, the author pauses. And I think that's part of keeping us in suspense. That's part of keeping us engaged with the story. But it's also because he wants us to focus on Haman. He wants us to see something important about Haman. So the rest of chapter 5 and then chapter 6 is really about Haman, who he is. And particularly in our passage, the focus is on Haman's pride. We're dealing with Haman's pride, and that's what I'm going to focus on this morning. Chapter 5 tells us a whole lot about pride. And so my outline is very simple. We're going to follow the text. I'd like to consider what pride is, how it works, what it does to us, and finally, how we can get rid of it. What pride is, how pride works, what it does to us, the damage it does to us, and how we can finally get rid of it. So what is pride? I think there's actually a lot of misconception about what pride is. Some of us use the word very positively. Some of us use the word very negatively. But pride, at its very simple definition, is self-obsession. Pride is self-obsession. It's just preoccupation with yourself, fixation on yourself. Now look at Haman. He is completely self-absorbed. I mean, it's amazing that he cannot see anything apart from how it affects him. Isn't it amazing? He's processing everything that comes into his life, relationships, career moves, what everybody says, wealth, everything is, is happening around him, and he only sees that in the way through the lens of how it affects him. Can't stop talking how wonderful he is. He's very sensitive to 
what people think of him or what they say about him. Everything is about him. When Haman decides to kill Mordecai, he builds a gallows that's about 75 feet high. 75 feet high is about 50 cubits is what it is. That is an incredibly tall gallows. You don't have to build a gallows that high to execute someone. You don't have to do that. Why is he building a huge monstrosity like that? Why is he doing that? The gallows is the, the size of his pride. That's why he's doing that. It's not as much about Mordecai as it is about Haman. wants everybody to see what happens to people who dare to disrespect Haman. He wants everybody to see that. The whole city is going to see how powerful Haman is, how important he is, how dangerous it is to, to say anything against him or not show him proper respect. So he builds a gallows the size of his pride. He wants everyone to see how important he is. He's validating himself. Now that's what pride is. It's just focusing on yourself. But how does it work? Let's, let's ask that question, dig a little deeper. I'd like to see the mechanism of pride here. You see, pride turns everything into a measurement of one's worth. Pride turns everything into a measurement of one's worth. So in other words... If I'm proud, I'm not just interested in what people think. I am interested in what people think about me. That's what, how pride works. When I'm considering a situation, I'm concerned with how it makes me look. When someone posts group pictures on social media, I quickly look through them for myself. I want to see if I'm in any of the pictures. I want to see if I look good in any of the pictures. Now, friends, I know what I look like already. There's no big surprise there. But I want to know if I look good with other people around me. Maybe I look better than somebody. Maybe other people would look at that picture and notice me. Pride can manifest itself either in focusing on the positives or the negatives. Now, one of these is more familiar to us than, others, than the other view. But I think it's just as important to see the two sides of pride. Whether you focus on positives or negatives, you're still focusing on you. I'm still focusing on me. Let me show you how these two aspects work in Haman's experience. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. Haman gets home, and he recounted to them the splendor of his riches. This is his family, his wife, his friends. Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Now, is this the kind of conversation you typically have when you get home after work? It doesn't seem like Haman is the kind of guy that when he gets home, he would say, honey, how was your day? I don't get it from Haman. It seems like this kind of gather around, let me tell you about myself kind of a thing happens all the time in his life. The impression I get is that the family and the friends are just there to applaud, to interrupt him when, when he says something particularly good about himself. They're the audience, but he's the star. He's clearly the star. 
And so every day he comes home and he recounts his accomplishments. He reminds everybody about the number of his sons, his legacy. He talks about how much the king appreciates him and how important his position is in the court. Now, he has things to boast about, certainly. The number of sons, that's pretty impressive. He, is, he holds the highest political office in the empire, second only to the king. He has fantastic wealth. But he likes to talk about it all the time. He likes to show how important he is. He likes to recount his accomplishments. Now, this form of pride, I think, is familiar to most of us. When we see that happen in ourselves or someone else, we say, that is, that is pride, being too proud. If we're just focusing on our accomplishments and all the positive things about ourselves. But look at what happens next, and this is more subtle. Haman says in verse 13, Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. So he's saying, all these things make me very important, but none of this matters to me unless Mordecai shows respect. And as long as he's being disrespectful, I am not going to be happy with any of my accomplishments. Mordecai, you see, does not acknowledge that Haman is, in fact, successful, rich, and important. Now, the first form of pride determines one's worth based on one's accomplishments. The second form of pride determines one's worth based on one's failures. Now, we typically don't associate pride with focusing on failure, but it's just the other side of the same thing. When somebody complains about themselves and they say how bad their life is, we would say, well, that person is very humble. They just talk about the negative things about themselves. But what are they really talking about? They're still themselves. The focus is still on the same person. It doesn't matter to some degree if you think too much or too little of yourself. The point is you're always thinking about yourself. And that's pride. Whether it comes out positively, look at me, right? All my accomplishments, I have many sons. Or if you say, look at me, poor me, everything has gone badly for me in my life. Either way, you're talking about yourself, you're thinking about yourself, and you're drawing attention to yourself. That's pride. Listen to Jason Mayer. He is the pastor at Bethlehem Baptist Church. He succeeded John Piper in that pulpit. He says, you can fall into self-exaltation, takes credit for success, and self-promotion, put those successes in other people's faces so they will give us credit for them. But pride can shift into the shape of self-degradation and self-demotion when we beat ourselves up for our failures. We are still obsessed with ourselves. In the first form, we are obsessed with our successes. In the second, we are obsessed with our failures. But either way, you're obsessed with yourself. And whether I am recounting my accomplishments or I'm complaining about my failures, I'm still obsessed with myself. And maybe this is helpful to you. Pride can say, woe is me, or it can say, wow is me. But either way, the point is still all about me. 
And that is how pride works. I hope this is challenging us a little bit because we typically don't think of pride as talking about things that are difficult, the struggles and the, the problems of life. But it works exactly the same way just from the other side. Now, what does pride do to us? If pride is focused on ourselves, what's wrong with that is the question. Before I tell you how to get rid of pride, I need to convince you that it's bad because our culture is pretty positive on pride. We have pride parades, for example. It's pretty positive, right? Pride is pretty cool. Our educational system hinges on building the kids' self-esteem. We want them to think about themselves more and think better of themselves. We tell each other to focus on personal happiness. Do what makes you happy. It's very common to hear that. We throw around phrases like, I am worth it. I deserve this. Can't barely watch a Hallmark movie without hearing a phrase like that. But the gospel exposes pride as an incredibly destructive sin. In fact, I'll show you that pride is a core sin. It's a root sin. It's a sin that leads to other sins. It's a parent sin. Of course, it makes sense that if it is that serious, if it is that destructive, if it's that powerful, the way the gospel describes it, that the world would exalt it and justify it and make it safe and make it good so we would pursue it. Because what the gospel considers central to our sinfulness, the world, of course, is going to have a very different view on. Listen to Jason Mayer again. He says, pride is not one sin among many, but a sin in a class by itself. Other sins lead the sinner further from God, but pride is particularly heinous in that it attempts to elevate the sinner above God. Pride is not just a sin, it's a sinful mother, a sinful orientation that gives birth to more sins. I think he's absolutely right. Pride is, is at the beginning of all sorts of other sins. And this is the world's way to minimize it, to, to neutralize our battle against it by saying, oh, don't worry about it, it's not that big of a deal. In fact, it's pretty positive. It's good to think about yourself. It's good to seek your happiness. It's good to build yourself up. It's good to put yourself at the center. You deserve it. You should worry about yourself. And as the world does that, and by the way, our culture is permeated by that, as the world does that, we start thinking it's not that big of a deal. And often we don't even notice it. We're deceived and thinking, maybe I'm not proud. Historically, Christians have considered pride as a root sin. It's the first in the seven deadly sins. So when you pull up the, if you have a little bookmark in your Bible, the seven deadly sins for your reflection, I don't know how many of you do that, but if you do, pride is going to be number one on that list. One of seven. Why? Because all the other sins actually come out of pride. Pride births all those other sins. We envy other people because we believe that we deserve what they have. And in fact, we believe that we are worthier of it than they are. 
Do we envy? Because we, we're proud. We get angry because someone has dared to threaten what is important to me. How dare they? If I could, I would destroy them. How dare they threaten what's important to me? Pride is at the core of anger. We are lazy because we do not have to do anything we don't want to do. Who makes decisions for my life? I make decisions. I don't want to do it. I won't do it. Pride undergirds sloth. We are greedy because there's not enough stuff in the world to match how highly I think of myself. That's greed. There's just not enough stuff. So I'm always going to want more because what I think of myself is so big I can't possibly fill it. We're gluttons because we reject the idea of putting limits on our appetites. That's pride. That works itself out in gluttony, but it's pride. We are lustful because we deserve pleasure, even if it is at someone else's expense. Pride leads to all kinds of evil. No wonder the world wants us to see it in a positive light. It's one of the greatest lies that we, we believe. If we embrace pride as a positive thing or just ignore it and don't think about it, we get entangled in so many other sins. But pride is tremendously destructive. Though often undetected, it is nonetheless very powerful. C.S. Lewis says, pride is spiritual cancer. Pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. Now, I want to work through those three from Lewis. He says, it, it eats up very the very possibility of love, contentment, or even common sense. So let's think about it. How does pride robs us? How does it rob us of, of love? Well, the whole premise of love is sacrifice. For me to love, I must think of someone else as more important than myself. But if I am coming into a relationship thinking that I am more important than everybody else, including this person I'm in a relationship with, how can I love them? It's impossible. Pride destroys relationships. Now, we have an extreme case here with Haman, right? He actually wants to murder thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. That's what pride does to him. Just to eliminate this disrespect. But we don't have to destroy people physically out of pride to understand how destructive pride is for relationships. Do you not think that the divorce epidemic in our culture is not connected to our obsession with personal happiness? Who's not connecting those two things? We've been taught and we've been conditioned that I am pursuing my own happiness. Well, of course I'm going to get out of this marriage that doesn't make me happy. Do you think that the increasing isolation and loneliness in our culture have nothing to do with our obsession with personal comfort and space? Do you think pride has nothing to do with people feeling lonely and isolated? Did you know that it's considered to be an epidemic? Loneliness is considered to be an epidemic. It's incredible. Did you, this is off script a little bit, but did you know that up until maybe mid-1800s, there was no such word as loneliness? 
they came up with that word because things were changing and societies became more divided and fragmented. People didn't used to be lonely. I mean, I'm sure some people were, but it wasn't in the cultural mindset of to be lonely. They used to talk about being onely, just being by yourself. Seriously, that was the word, onely in English. And then people started becoming lonely. And now it's an epidemic. In the UK, they have a minister of loneliness. No joke, no joke. The government actually has a position for somebody to deal with the issue of loneliness in the United Kingdom. Because it's a problem. So let me ask this question. Do you think pride has nothing to do with that? Think pride has nothing to do with me not wanting to spend time with people that maybe I don't respect or maybe I don't care for or maybe I don't think they're worth anything? Of course it does. Of course it does. Or me wanting my own space, you think that has nothing to do with me not spending time with other people? Of course it does. Do you think political polarization has nothing to do with pride? Come on. Come on. I know it's about values. I know it's about ideologies. I know that. But it's also about pride. It's also about me wanting to be right. It's also about me saying, I see the political landscape in the right way, and you don't, and I won't talk to you. Pride. I just assume I'm more important. I assume I have a better view. I assume I understand things better. So pride eats up the very possibility of healthy relationships and love. How about contentment? Lewis is right to say that pride also eats up the very possibility of contentment. You think Haman was a happy fella? Want to hang out with Haman? Want to hear about how many sons he has and what he has accomplished and how much he hates Mordecai? No. I think it's going to be the same conversation over and over again every time we get together for lunch. I don't think he was very happy. He seems very bitter. He seems very resentful. He seems unable to, to really enjoy what he has. By the way, he has a lot. He's a very successful person, very wealthy person. Seems to have a large family with all the sons. And yet, he can't really enjoy it. He's not a joyful person. He says, all this is worth nothing to me. My wife, my children, my career, the approval of the king. That's what he's saying. He's saying, all of this means nothing to me because Mordecai doesn't bow to me. Doesn't seem like a happy, content person. How can anyone be happy if we are constantly measuring our worth against every conversation we have or every sign of approval or disapproval, personal or virtual? And how can you be happy if you're constantly trying to figure out just how valuable you are to other people? And your whole life is bound up with who said what about you. And many of us think, well, we've left it in junior high, right? Mm -mm. Most of us haven't. We're still doing the same thing. We're still caring about people and their opinions and measuring ourselves against them and deriving our worth from what people say about us. How can you be happy and content like that? And the third thing Lewis brings up is common sense. I think it's very curious that he brings it up. He says pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of even common sense. Now look at Haman. Do you think his judgment 
is right? Do you think he's processing his life rationally, making good decisions? You think the 75 feet gallows was a good call on that particular day? Because he was very excited about that. When his wife and friend suggested it, he's like, this is great. This is a beautiful idea. This is exactly what I wanted. We're going to build it today, and tomorrow morning, after breakfast, we'll, we'll hang Mordecai. That's his plan. Now, is that a rational approach? Is it rational to say, I have all this in my life, but yet I'm going to focus on this one person? I'm going to have him determine my happiness? And by the way, I'm going to, I'm going to eliminate all his people? Is that a rational decision? No. Pride affects your judgment. Of course it does. Pride makes you irrational. Let me say it how I feel it. Pride makes you stupid. It makes us stupid. We make stupid decisions when we focus on ourselves. Now you see the glimpse here. You see this opening into one proud person's life. And yes, you know, Esther takes it to the extreme. We see the whole trajectory here. We see where, where Haman ends up. But in any people's life, in any one of our experiences, pride is just as destructive, is just as powerful. Whether we realize it or not, there's a trajectory. And the trajectory of pride ends in death. Now, spoiler alert, so if you want to plug your ears, if you're not reading Esther ahead and you've never read the book, okay? So I'm going to give you a second here. But Haman gets hanged on the same gallows that he had built for Mordecai. He was actually building the gallows on which he would die. And he built it huge because that's how big his pride was. And that's where he gave his life. Because that is the, the trajectory of pride. It's destruction. There's nothing good comes from that. Now God shows us in the story of Haman just how destructive and powerful pride is. Let's take that lesson. Let's heed that lesson. We may be deceived into thinking and focusing on ourselves and thinking that it will bring us happiness, but it can only bring us death. Listen to Miroslav Volf. Uh, he's, a, he's a scholar at Yale. He, he says, far from finding fulfillment. You hear that word a lot in our culture, fulfillment. Far from finding fulfillment, the self turned in upon itself loses itself in the emptiness of its own meaninglessness. And the emptier the self is, the more obsessed with the self we become. And the more obsessed with the self we become, the emptier the self becomes. It's a vicious cycle. The more proud you get, the less of you there is. And the more of you you want, and the less of you you get. Finally, until there's nothing left. Nothing left of you. That's the destructive power of pride. Now let me talk about how we can get rid of it. This is my final point the most important point. I'm going to assume you believe me. I'm going to assume you agree that pride is bad. I'm going to assume that our culture is wrong to build us up and to make us focus on ourselves and think that we are the most important people, that the world, in fact, does revolve around ourselves. I'm going to assume you agree with me and not the culture. Then the question is, what do we do with it? 
How can we get rid of pride before it kills us? The Bible gives us the only sure remedy, the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ. How does the cross help us get rid of our pride? Well, first, the cross shocks us out of our self-absorption. It shocks us out of our self-centeredness. Mary Carr, in her memoir, writes, Why does redemption have to come through the crucifixion? I mean, why couldn't you play hopscotch or win at solitaire? She's a writer, so she's trying to be witty. We're hard to sell people, so venal and nuts that will crowd into the Colosseum, jubilant to see people hacked to death or devoured by beasts, or will sit drooling before comparably horrific TV images. Only a crucifixion is awful enough to compel public imagination. Only a crucifixion is awful enough to compel public imagination. Carr's answer to why the cross is it had to be so shocking, it had to be so awful that we would pay attention because we see so many things around us that we need something that would stand out. Now, I think she is missing the biggest point of the cross, that is the substitutionary atonement. God had to die for our sins. But I think she is getting at something very important. The cross is so shocking that we have to pay attention. Now, I know I'm talking about Christian, talking to Christians, and we have domesticated the cross. We use it as a symbol, right? And we have warm feelings about the cross, and some of it is absolutely right, because we know our Savior And he is dear to us, and that symbolizes him and his love. That's true. But we need to reassess what actually happened on that cross. I mean, it's shocking enough to think that a person, a human person, would be tortured and killed in that way. It's just an awful way of dying. But God? That God would be killed on the cross in that way? It's almost unimaginable that God would suffer and die like that. What is the cross but a gallows with God's corpse hanging from it? That's how shocking it is. And it has to be that way because we are so focused on ourselves that for us to break out of it, for us to just to lift our head up, lift our eyes up and see what else is out there besides me, something awful like that had to happen. The cross has the power to get our attention. It has the power to refocus us away from us. If anything has that power, the cross does. It has the power to let us consider, even just consider the possibility That the world is not centered on me, and it doesn't revolve around me. Have you considered the cross in that way? When you read the scriptures, and you get to the passages that talk about the flogging of Jesus, that talk about the physical suffering that he endured, that talk about him struggling for breath, being thirsty on the cross, and then the spiritual agony of feeling abandoned by God, and already abandoned by people. When you read those passages, does it grab your attention? 
Does it arrest your imagination? And you're saying, this is so big. This is so shocking. This is so awful. It has to affect me. I can't just read through it and and get a bagel afterwards. It's so important. This is so different. This is so shocking. So unsettling. It's so disturbing that I have to pay attention to this. The cross does that. And I think it has to be the first step for us to consider ourselves in the right way We have to break out of the normal patterns of thinking. And by the way, most of us are controlled by these normal, self-centered patterns of thinking. And the cross has to break us out, which is why, friends, every Sunday we sing about the cross. We preach about the cross. We come to the table where we see his body broken, his blood spilled. This is awful that he did this to jolt us out of our pride and self-centeredness. Secondly, the cross of Christ allows us to see our true worth. It allows us to see our true worth. Remember, I said that pride uses everything into a measurement of our worth. So we have a conversation with somebody and we're thinking, okay, how does it reflect on me? What do they think about me? I go to work and I'm thinking, I wonder what the boss thinks about me. Am I going to get promoted? Is he unhappy? And so everything I'm processing is I'm using to determine my own worth. So the cross settles the issue. It settles the issue by first crushing our accomplishments and by secondly redeeming our failures. Listen to John Stott, British theologian, pastor. He says, every time we look at the cross of Christ, he seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin that I am bearing. Your curse that I am suffering, your debt I am paying, your death I am dying. Nothing in history of the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have an inflated view of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. Stott is saying, when you look at the cross, you see how your accomplishments mean nothing. Why? Because God still had to die for you. So whatever you bring to him, whatever record of religious observance, whatever moral accomplishments, whatever family values or or your voting record, whatever you bring to God, God says, that's still not enough. My son still has to die for you. Because whatever you bring to me is insufficient. And so I can't go back home and say, let me recount my accomplishments. Because if I see the cross, I hear the voice of God saying, that's not enough. It's not enough for me to avoid the death of my son. And friends, when we get that, When that hits home, when you realize that that the cross does not let you revel in your accomplishments, when that hits home, you realize you need a Savior, and you start focusing on your failures. But even there, the cross lifts us up to our proper position before God. So yes, our accomplishments don't matter because it took God's death to help us. But... 
On the other hand, my failures don't matter because he did die for me. Yes, he had to die. That's how big my sin is. That's how feeble my efforts are. And yet, he was glad to die. He died willingly. Jesus says, I want to do this. Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down for you. He did that willingly. Why? He must value you. He must value me. We must matter to him that he would do that. None of our failures disqualify us from his love. That's an amazing part of the gospel. To think that I can't focus on my accomplishments or I become self-righteous. But I can't focus on my failures either or I reject his love. And so that breaks me out of my pride. The cross shocks us out of our pride, crushes us in our accomplishments, but then builds us up from our failures, all the while keeping focus off of ourselves and on Jesus. Let me just say this. It is impossible, this is utterly impossible to be proud while contemplating the cross of Jesus. It is impossible. It doesn't make any sense. You can't do that. As long as you can remember the cross, as long as the cross is at the front of your mind, you can't be proud. You just can't do it. Because you see on the cross that your accomplishments don't mean anything and your failures don't disqualify you from his love. Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary, tried by sinful men, torn and beaten, then nailed to a cross of wood. Oh, to see the pain written on your face, bearing the awesome weight of sin. Every bitter thought, every evil deed, crowning your blood-stained brow. This is the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath, and now we stand forgiven at the cross. Now the daylight flees, now the ground beneath quakes as its maker bows his head. Curtain torn in two, dead are raised to life, finished the victory cry. Oh, to see my name written in the wounds. For through your suffering I am free. Death is crushed to death. Life is mine to live, won through your selfless love. This is the power of the cross. Son of God, slain for us. What a love, what a cost. We stand forgiven at the cross. We're going to sing that song in a minute. How can we sing that and be proud? It's impossible to see the cross and still focus on yourself. I'm going to leave you with this as we come to communion. The choice that is said before every human being is the gallows or the cross. It's the gallows that our own pride had built on which we will be hanged. Or is the cross on which Jesus died for me. Either your pride leads you to hell or the cross gives your life forever. The gallows or the cross.
on the cross, God offers love and forgiveness, acceptance that doesn't depend on you, doesn't revolve around you. It's not centered on you. It's offered to you. The cross is God holding out the golden scepter to you and saying, come into my presence. Be accepted here because Jesus gave his life in your place. He died for your pride. He went to the gallows that you can have the freedom of the cross. He says, come to me in humility and faith. The gallows or the cross, I or Jesus, that's the choice. I'm going to ask you to come to the table. And everybody who comes to the table, if you're doing that sincerely, if you're not just going through the motions, but if you're doing it for real, you are saying, I am choosing Christ. I'm choosing the cross. I don't want to be proud. I don't want to think only of myself. I don't think I'm the most important person. I am coming to the table because I think Jesus is at the center of my life. And I want to grow in humility. I want to grow in faith. But the cross has shocked me out of my self-fixation.